one of the crazy wild things that happens when you repent of your sin and become a Christian is that you view everything differently. God redeems your soul and redeems your eyesight. God gives you an, a gospel eye. You see glimpses of grace and things you never saw before. Suddenly God's salvation has infused everything with meaning. For instance, nature. When God gave me a new heart, I started seeing nature differently. For the first time, I started seeing God do a million amazing things that made my jaw drop. Stars hanging in the sky. Ants marching in lines. Fish swimming on the bottom of the ocean with little light bulbs hanging off their heads. G.K. Chesterton said, it is possible. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never got tired of making them. The repetition in nature may not be mere reoccurrence. It, it, it may be a theatrical encore. You see ants and flowers with a gospel eye. But not just nature. Food. I see food differently now that I'm a Christian. I've never enjoyed eating. Ever. I've never enjoyed eating. When I confessed this to my wife, she went into anaphylactic shock. Like, what a sad life you live that you don't enjoy eating food. What is wrong with you? I ate to survive, not to make my palate dance. But the gospel is changing that. I'm beginning to see the world as God's wonderful gift to draw me to Him. Using the language of Colossians 2, 17, food and drink, parties, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Every part of the world is a shadow that is intended to draw us to the substance of Christ. The command then is that we maximize the shadow so that we would feel the substance even more. When you eat, try and pay attention to each specific flavor on your tongue. Because the more you eat and enjoy the taste, the more you will long for God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here's what that means. I eat Krispy Kreme donuts for the glory of God. <laughs> I eat a GMO sweet potato for the glory of God. All of you organic kale eating people, you know, chew on that for a while. Unhealthy things I can eat for the glory of God. Now, I realize this may sound weird to some of you. However, being a recipient of the gospel hasn't just increased my, my love for nature and food, but also for romance and friendship and a hundred other things. One of them being sports. My favorite sport to watch and play is basketball. I grew up captivated by MJ's silky smooth jumper. I was indoctrinated at a young age to be a North Carolina Tar Heel fan. And I know I got lots of sports fans in the church. Uh, why, why don't you just tell me what your favorite sport is? Just, just call it out. Soccer. Okay, so soccer, uh, European football, uh, popular in Mexico, most of Europe, really a worldwide sport. Uh, soccer, others? Football, okay, uh, most popular sport in the U.S., and uh, we've been going through withdrawals, but college football 
is back, so we're safe. You said hockey. Yes, my wife is uh, from Canada, so that's her favorite sport. And it's really a man sport. If you, um, if you get a team and you, and you make all of them open their mouths and you look at their teeth and you count up all the teeth, it's still not a full set. It's still not a full set. My, my father-in-law is 62 and plays soccer every week. I mean, hockey every week, and then he's just fake teeth everywhere. It's just something about hockey. It's just a man's man. What, what are some other, other sports? Baseball. Baseball. Uh, the most famous, popular sport in Japan. Uh, my son loves baseball, likes baseball as well. I always say likes instead of love. We don't allow our kids to say love, like I loved that food or I love that whatever, uh, because they can't love you back. So we always say Anyhow, that has nothing to do. I'm hearing some of this for the first time myself, to be honest with you. You can't, you, you can't love something that doesn't love you back. So you like, anyhow, we like baseball. Any others? Ping pong. Ping pong. Yeah, that is, a, that is quite a sport. Yeah, Forrest Gump mastered it. All right, others? Tennis? Yes, I played tennis with my neighbor in Knoxville. Took him out. He was in his 50s, and I'm like, I'm going to dominate this guy. And I uh, took him out. His, his yard was better than mine, so I didn't like it. So I'm like, I'm going to take him on the ken- tennis court. So I took him on the tennis court, and then he started destroying me. And he's like, I forgot to tell you, I, I used to be a tennis instructor. And I'm like, oh, see, that's wrong. That is wrong. Uh, there's uh, any, any others? Volleyball, yes, getting spiked right in the head. Volleyball is a good one. Others? Cricket, the most popular sport in India. Uh, what about this one really popular in the South? NASCAR. That's right, yes. Is that really a sport? I, I don't know. Ricky Bobby says it is, and he's a strong theologian, so we're going we're gonna to give it to him. Uh, hunting, is it really a sport if, if nothing is dying? So hunting could definitely be a sport. Golf, golf is a gentleman's sport. I used to go with my friend Keith, who lived with us, and... Um, he would break clubs over his knee. He would throw clubs in the pond. He did not play it in a gentleman way. But golf is a gentleman's sport. You know who else really likes sports? The Apostle Paul. He always talked about sports. He wrote about sports in nearly every letter. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19. Galatians 5 verse 7. Five different references to sports just in the book of Philippians. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. His longest sporting metaphor is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul's a sport enthusiast, a sports aficionado. Now you may be thinking, I can see Paul doing some small talk in those little books, but I bet he didn't mention it in Romans, his most serious, doctrinally saturated book. He's not going to deal with frivolous sporting analogies in that book. Well... Romans 11.11 seems to say the opposite. If Paul wrote Hebrews, and we're not sure he did, but if he did, he mentions it there as well in chapter 21, verse 1. Why is Paul traveling around the world and writing letters mentioning sports? Because sport is a language that is spoken by people around the world. And it was certainly familiar, a familiar subject to Roman citizens living in Philippi in the first century. And when Paul talks about sports, he's not asking, hey, who, who won the game yesterday? No, he's seeing sports through gospel lenses and using it to teach deep doctrine, often describing the work of sanctification. 
when he was Saul, he viewed sports a certain way, but now that he is Paul, he has a gospel eye and he sees glimpses of grace. Paul's a sports guy. David Platt thinks he was a, a Georgia Bulldog fan because he says in verse 2, watch out for the dogs. <laughs> what, a, what a blatant abuse of scripture. We, we all know Paul was a North Carolina Tar Heel fan. Now, if I asked Paul, what's your favorite sport? He would say without a doubt, running. Of all the sports analogies he uses, running is by far the most common. It's the sport described in this text. In fact, there are four references to running in five verses. No, notice the word press mentioned two times. It could be translated run. So run is mentioned twice. Goal, that's the, that's the Greek word for when a runner sees the finish line. Straining, that's a Greek word used when a runner stretches out his chest to cross the finish line. Prize, that's a Greek word for an Olympian standing on the podium receiving the Olympic medal. Or in Paul's day, an olive wreath. In verses 12 through 16, we are going to be dealing with one sport, running, but pulling three truths from it. We will hit the three truths first and then gather up some sporting applications at the end. And each truth is proceeding from the mouth of Paul. Truth number one. I've broken a lot of records, but I'm not a perfect athlete. Notice verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. Did you catch that? I haven't obtained it. What is it that Paul wants to obtain? Is he talking about the resurrection from the previous verse? Well, in a sense, yes, but more than that, we're given a clue with the verb translated perfect. I haven't already become perfect. Stephen Davey says it's the only time Paul uses this word in verb form in any of his letters. It means to reach moral and spiritual perfection. Paul here is comparing himself to the goal of Christ's likeness and he says, I haven't arrived. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, I haven't reached a point in my Christian experience where I think after Christ, walk with Christ, and model Christ with consistent purity and maturity. Can you believe he's saying this? He is the super apostle, the author of 13 New Testament books, the leader of the New Testament church. The recipient of heavenly visions and apostolic powers. The one given a personal tour of heaven. The clear thinking theologian. If Paul were a sprinter, he would be Usain Bolt. The Jamaican Usain Bolt. Running far out in front of the competition. I mean, he should be celebrating before he crosses the finish line. Leaving everyone in the dust. Or putting on a smile in front of others to show how easily he is running this race. Bolt actually won a gold in the 1 and 200 meter three years straight. Paul, like Bolt, has gold medals hanging everywhere around his neck. They call Bolt the greatest sprinter of all time. They call Paul the greatest missionary of all time. Bolt was known for being cocky and arrogant. Paul was known for being humble and meek. Bolt said, I'm a legend. I'm the best athlete of all time. Paul said, I'm limited. I haven't arrived. 
And by the way, this is the attitude of any growing athlete. I have room for improvement. I could swing better, run faster, stay more focused, train harder. This is what one author called a holy dissatisfaction. Warren Risby wrote on this text, Paul never permitted himself to be satisfied with his spiritual progress. He was satisfied with Jesus Christ, but he was not satisfied with his Christian life. He lived with a sense of sanctified dissatisfaction. Friends, humbly acknowledge that you haven't arrived. Now that's going to be hard for some of you perfectionists. Those of you who make a checklist every day and complete it every day. Those of you who are asking for a label maker for Christmas. This isn't going to be easy for you. You need to admit that your walk with Christ isn't as pure and checked as it appears. And when you do, it's extremely freeing. F.B. Meyer said, Self-dissatisfaction lies at the root of our noblest achievements. Whatever we achieve spiritually begins with dissatisfaction. I'm not pleased with where I am in my spiritual life. I'm not content with my spiritual condition. If you are content, you've reached a very dangerous point. It's a point to which you will find yourself insensitive to sin. If you've had enough prayer, enough church, and enough teaching of the Word of God, and enough of the Bible, and enough of Christian fellowship to satisfy you, you're in a very dangerous condition. John MacArthur says, For if not theological perfectionism, you have arrived at some sort of pragmatic perfectionism. Where you're as perfect as you care to be. And that assumes that you're as perfect as God cares for you to be. By the way, some false teachers in Philippi have adopted a perfectionistic view of spirituality. They believed in a doctrine of attainable perfection based on following Judaistic rules. Paul's writing to a church who is hearing people say to their ear, Spiritual perfection is available to you. If you're circumcised and follow all these commands. Now if you grew up in the Methodist circle. Like my grandparents and parents. Or have a Nazarene background. You perhaps remember them teaching perfectionism. Perfectionism means you can. Perfectionism means you, you can attain sinless perfection. On earth before you die. And some forms of it. Even the eradication of the sin nature. John Wesley and his brother Charles, who have gifted us with so many excellent hymns, both of them fell into this a bit. There are ancient and modern versions of this, but, but Paul repudiates them all. There's no such thing as sinless perfection. Sinless perfection is not the experience even of the Apostle Paul on this side of glory. What did the gospel do to Paul? The gospel humbled Paul. He previously thought of himself as having arrived with all his credentials, outpacing the other Pharisees. But the gospel had a humbling effect. And notice how Paul says the same thing, but in, in two different ways. Verse 12a, he says, I have not attained. He says the same thing in, in verse 13a. I do not consider having reached. And he follows both of those statements with Statements that are very similar to one another. I press on to reach 12b and then 13b, I pursue toward the goal. One scholar said, I believe Paul is trying to teach all of us and all generations that perfection in this life is a goal, but not an achievement. 
It's something you pursue but never reach. And the next phase is like an explosion of spiritual longing. Notice verse 12. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now keep in mind, Paul is not, you have to hear this, especially those of you who are not Christians, you have to hear this. Paul is not talking about chasing down his salvation. He's not talking about running after justification. And if I run fast enough, maybe I'll get into the family of God. No. Christ Jesus made me his own. Literally, Christ Jesus seized me, caught me. Some translators say arrested me. In Acts 9, Paul was seized by Christ, caught by Christ, arrested by Christ. It turned his whole life upside down. Christianity is not something you take up. It's something that takes you up. It's not something you start. It's something that starts upon you. The, the church father, Theodoret, recast Paul's imagery here from running to hunting. He says, Paul says in effect, it was God who first caught me in his net. For I was fleeing him and was turned away. He caught me as I fled. But now I turn and am in pursuit in my desire of catching him that I may not be a disappointment to his saving work. Because Christ seized me, I long to seize him, end quote. We are trying to grasp the one who has grasped us. And I thought Tony Morita had a good picture of this. He pictured a child holding on to a parent. He said his little daughter got pulled into the ocean by the surf. And while he and the other four kids were playing, no one was paying close attention except for his wife. And so she ran into the water to pull her out. As little Victoria screamed in panic, the mother seized her. And in turn, Victoria didn't want to turn her loose. We hold fast to the one who already holds us fast. Friends, when you've been delivered out of death and from destruction, you run after the one who ran after you. You don't gloat. You don't strut. The word here, press on, is really unique because it's also used in verse 6. Paul talks about it and how he persecuted the church. So same word in verse 6 that we find in verse 12. What a reversal that Christ does in our hearts. This guy who was so zealous in running after the church to kill them is now so zealous in running after Christ to please him. He presses on, literally means he runs after. Now that's the first truth. The second truth coming out of Paul's mouth is this. I will not look back. I will reach forward. A large part of coaching is encouraging people where to focus their eyes. Uh, keep your head down and eyes on the ball as you swing the golf club. Follow the ball with your eyes and make sure it hits the bat. For a runner, keep your eyes on the finish line. The Miracle Mile. The Miracle Mile was the most famous race in history. It was the 1954 British Games, and two of the men in the race had just recently ran a mile under four minutes, which was totally unheard of in this day. Roger Bannister, the Brit, and John Landy, the Australian. 
The world listened intently as they heard the crack of the starting pistol. Our family found this race on YouTube and watched. It was a thrilling race, especially the ending. Landy took the lead early and he set the pace. The track bell rang, indicating the last lap. Landy developed a huge lead and it looked like he would run away with the victory. Then came that moment that would be played and replayed thousands of times in print and on flickering black and white movie screens. Landy had the lead nearing the finish line and while the crowd roared and cheered in the background, he couldn't hear the Brit's footsteps. Was he far away? Was he close? And Landy did the unthinkable. He looked back. A fatal collapse of concentration. It resulted in a momentary loss of rhythm, a shuffle in the stride. And in that split second, the Brit who was at his right shoulder swept past Landy and won the race. Looking back, Landy would be the caption of a thousand pictures. Paul said, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. In other words, don't look back. That's good coaching by Paul. Don't be a look back Landy. You say, Kyle, look back at what? Well, that's easy. Your former wins and your former losses. Let's cover the wins first. Paul will not allow himself to grow complacent in his past achievements. And that would have been easy for him to do if he yielded to it. Ken Burns makes documentaries about guys like this. He was and remains the theologian of the church. More than that, he was the missionary to the Gentiles, bringing the light to darkness in Asia and Europe. A runner doesn't go to the blocks in a sprint and, and getting ready for a race and, and say to the guys around him, you know, I've run this, I've ran this race before in under four minutes. I've won the gold in this for three years running. They call me lightning bolt. No, who cares, man? Get in the blocks. This is another race. Paul didn't list his past accomplishments. He wasn't looking back when he shook that poisonous snake off while he was collecting wood and, and just walked on like a boss. He wasn't looking back at any of his victories. Nor was Paul looking back at all his losses. Some of you will go through real losses in this life. Falsely accused of something. Betrayal of a friend. A spouse stepping out. The loss of a child. Something that disfigures you for the rest of your life. And I just want to gently remind you that your bereavement of those things can make you live in the past. Run with your head turned back. You can possess a sort of dwelling on the past that hinders your present effort. One commentator said this of Paul, and for the life of me, I can't remember which one, so I'm going to claim it as my own. <laughs> he forgets as he runs. Paul simply forgets as he runs. And you can too. If you're not focused on your race of faith, your race of sanctification, you will look back at past sins. Satan's on the sidelines yelling, how can you even run in this way, race when, when you have that sin in your past? Sometimes I wish you could just hear what I hear. 
Kyle, I've blown it in ways that haunt me. Have you read the Bible? No one gets out clean. It's filled with train-wrecked people. There's only like two people in the entire Bible that could work on staff at this church. That's it. Not Paul, former felon, murderer. Not Solomon, thousand wives. Not David, adulterer. Not Adam, brought sin into the world. Not Noah, his best friend named Whiskey. Not Abraham, lied and said his wife was a sister to protect himself. And for the life of me, I can't find out why the Jews gloried in this man so much. Well, I am from Abraham. That's not a good thing, bro. I've read, read about him. It's not good. Not Samson. He's got long hair. <laughs> Dwelling on the past is like trying to run with a ball and chain around your ankle. Confess your sin, flee to Christ, remind yourself of the gospel, and press on. None of this navel-gazing madness. People just always looking at their belly button, their little navel, like, well, I'm, I'm always blowing it. Yeah, yeah, you are, and you're going to blow it again. You think Christ didn't know that? Be, be like David Ross, the Cubs player, the oldest guy to ever homer in a World Series. He was put in in the fifth inning as the catcher. Last game of his career, uh, championship on the line, and he had three straight errors, missing it. Bases are loading everywhere. He's costing his team the game. But he didn't get defeated. He didn't hang his shoulders. The next inning, he stepped to the plate, literally forgot his previous three errors, and he hit a home run that proved to win the game. Confessed the sin in the last inning, and then stepped to the plate. The reality of the gospel is that you have permission to forget. Remembering is a grace, and forgetting is also a grace. Forgetting is not a passive loss of memory. No, it's an active, continuous discipline of the mind and heart. Paul is not distracted by the trophies of the past or the troubles of the past. But we do have to ask this question. Was the apostle suggesting a blanket amnesia over the past? No. Paul's extensive writings reveal a remarkable memory of people and events. The final chapter of Romans reveals a mind and memory that function like a mental GPS. Paul lists no less than 33 names of people from all over the ancient world. So Paul isn't talking about developing spiritual amnesia. Keep in mind... That in biblical terminology, forgetting something doesn't mean you can't remember it anymore. To forget in the Bible means you no longer are influenced or affected by it. Which explains God's promise as the writer of Hebrews 10.17 records God saying, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Because you step back and you're like, wait a minute, God doesn't forget anything. He's God. What it means is that God will no longer allow our sins to influence him or affect him as to our standing in Christ. Paul's Christian life is not described as a stroll, but a run. He's not coasting. He's not drifting. He's not skipping. Christ is too precious for that. Verse 13, he is straining forward. He's striving. He's reaching. He's longing. He's aching. 
be careful that you do not develop a passive attitude about the Christian life. Growth in Christ's likeness is not an impassive stroll. There's no quietism here. There's no let, let go and let God theology here. This is straining with every spiritual muscle. Peter O'Brien observes that, that this word straining was drawn from the games. And it pictures a, a runner with his eyes fixed on the goal and his body bent forward. The best runners have their body always like they're losing about it, bent forward as he enters the last and decisive stages of the race. Paul gives another truth from his parched lips, and it's this. I am not running because the weather is nice. I'm running to win a prize. If you've been a Christian long enough, you're going to realize that the weather is not always perfect. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One of my bucket list desires is to watch the Olympics in person. Paul probably did. He knew, the, he knew of the Olympic Games, which took place every four years at, at the center of Greece. He would have been even more closely in touch with the Isthmian Games... This event took place every other year and was second in importance. And it happened very close to his beloved Corinth. In the city of Athens during the days of Paul, Stephen Davey researched. And, and he said that a victorious athlete was given 500 pieces of money, free meals, and front row seats at any theatrical event. Quite a prize. According to Paul... Our prize is far greater than money or food or front row seats. One gospel hymn writer put it this way. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will soon be o'er when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, so he's recognizing there's mature and non-mature in the congregation. And if, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. As I was studying this, I, I was thinking, I want all of us to be mature in this way. To embrace this tenacity. To have this tenacity about living the Christian life. And then it helped me to be put in my place by the Spurge. Charles Spurgeon said about this verse, and I quote, I admire this sentence. If any brother has not reached a full knowledge of the truth, let us not condemn him or cast him out of our company, but say to him, God shall reveal even this unto you. I remember when my wife and I went to uh, Austin Texas, and we were eating with a pastor friend of mine, and he asked me a question, a theological question. He said, are you this? And it was a, a theological system. And I said, no. And he said, oh, man, just keep reading your Bible. You will be. And I, I just said, I can't stand that guy. I told Sarah after, like, I'm not going to work for this guy. I don't care if he wants me to. But he was right. Like, just keep reading your Bible, and you'll get there. 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Us. Only let us hold true. 
One, one commentator writes that Paul is using the Greek equivalent of, let's all do this. Let's all do this. You say, Kyle, I don't like running. I don't run marathons. I don't run on a treadmill. I don't run around my subdivision. I don't like running. Well, whether you like it or not, or whether you're aware of it or not, if you're a Christian, you're, in a, you're running a race of sanctification. And if an animal designated your effort towards sanctification, what animal would it be? Would it be a sloth or a cheetah? We have a couple in our church who has only been saved for a short time. But the wisdom with which they live their, their lives is, is way up here. And their theological depth is crazy deep. And at least once a month, people ask me, how did that couple mature so quickly? I can't believe they've only been saved for nine years. What pill are they taking? Because I need it. And my response is always the same. Every day, they run after Christ like a cheetah. How hard are you pursuing your opportunities to pursue Christ? How hard are you pursuing your opportunities to pursue Christ? How hard are you pursuing corporate worship? How hard are you pursuing your, your daily Bible study? Your generosity, your service to others? Have a breathless chase after Christ every day. Now I have three applications. They're going to start broad and then they will go narrow. And these applications are different than any application church that I've ever given you, okay? Because I'm going I'm to give you thematic applications around sports. So the exposition is finished. Everything else is, is just for free, okay? That's my Christmas gift to you. It's, it's, it's early. If I don't deal with this now, I don't, I don't know when I would ever deal with it again. Okay, so here's the first application. It's for sports enthusiasts. Like Paul, be a sports fan, but not a sports fanatic, the word fan is actually short for fanatic, but the two don't seem interchangeable to me. I consider myself a fan, not a fanatic. And it may seem like semantics, but I don't think it is. There are important differences between fans and fanatics. For instance, you fans, when your team loses, you say, oh man, but then your world goes on. When your team wins, you may buy a shirt, celebrate, but that's it. When your player messes up, you acknowledge it, but then you move on. That's fans. Fanatics. When your team loses, it ruins your day. It makes you angry. And that's when you know that sports hold a place in your heart that only Jesus should possess. And when you win, it leads to obnoxious bragging. <laughs> and, and, and when a player messes up, you boo him, trash talk him, and send threatening letters to his house. You've got problems. Problem, fanatical problems. You know what would really help you? To possess a theology of sports. Which is what I think you receive when you take all of Paul's references in the scripture to sports and put them together, you receive a theology of sports. Sports doesn't get a lot of press from the pulpit because most preachers tend to be dorks. You're gifted. I am obviously a cool cat, but most are not. Um, theologians have largely ignored sports. 
Uh, there's a book entitled Sports and Christianity, Historical and Contemporary Perspective. It's written by Watson and Parker. It costs $100. But I'm going to save you that money, and I'm going to give you a theology of sports here. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once sat in a prison cell and wondered whether the church, us, wondered whether the church could regain its position of providing a robust understanding of activities such as play, sports, friendship, art, and games. Jeremy R. Treat wrote an essay that is straight gold. I mean, it's, when you read it, it'll be a real treat. Jeremy Treat wrote an article. When you read it, it'll be a real treat. It'll, yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. The article's entitled, More Than a Game, A Theology of Sport. And so it's super, super interesting. In the, in the first few centuries of the church, Christians were largely against the sports of the day. Albeit for understandable reasons. The early Olympic games were dedicated to pagan gods like Zeus and Nike. And athletes usually competed in the nude. Moreover, the, mo the most popular sporting event, the gladiator games, involved throwing Christians into the ring with wild bears and lions. So you could understand. Broadly speaking, throughout the history of the church, they've had an overall negative and dismissive view of sports. The devil's workshop at worst, or a secular means to an evangelistic end at best. Uh, John Calvin played a little bocce ball. Diedrich Bonhoeffer played a little tennis. But in the early years of America, the serious-minded Puritans put sports almost completely outside of God's will. I'm contesting that sport belongs to God, not Satan. Now, Satan can pervert it just like he did with sex, but, but the instinct to play came from God. I, I watched I watch my kids play kickball yesterday. Some of you are thinking, like, wasn't it raining all day yesterday? Mind your own business, okay? Yeah, they were playing kickball in the front yard yesterday, and, and I was reminded that the instincts to play came from God. I want to give you a gospel eye like Paul to view sports. God created the idea of play. Play isn't the result of the fall. Games and sports were not a result of the fall. God's first people were commanded to develop and then delight. Develop the Garden of Eden, take care of it, but then delight. That's where I get play. God's creation. Of course, playing in the Garden of Eden is not like playing in Madison Square Garden. God did not give Adam and Eve a court and a ball, but he did give them a natural instinct to play that would inevitably develop into something more. Sport is more than a game, less than a God, and when transformed by the gospel, can be enjoyed for the glory of God, just like a Krispy Kreme donut. Application number two. This is for parents. Parents, use sports to teach the Christian life to your children. Now, here's what I mean by that. I, here's what I don't mean by that. I, I don't mean make it a classroom for morality. Listen to authority, work well with others, on and on. I'm not suggesting a morality-centered sports environment, but a gospel-centered sports environment. Paul saw areas in sports that could be redeemed and he used them to teach sanctification in the Christian walk to adults. Uh, 
I'm saying you, you teach it to adults, but you also teach it to your kids. My oldest two boys play baseball. And at their games, I hear parents yell at their kids, yelling through the chain link fence. We practice this. Get your head in the game. Pull the double play next time. And I'm like, he's five. He just learned not to wet himself. <laughs> Stop reliving your childhood through your kids. And I know that's what's going on because when they're running around outside playing freeze tag, you're not saying, are you serious? Focus. Get your head in the game. No. Fathers, I want, you to, I want you to go upstairs. When you get home today, I want you to go upstairs, go to your attic, go to your garage, wherever you keep that old yearbook. Then I want you to pull it out. Then I want you to open it up to the page where you're sliding into home base to win the state championship. And then I want you to... I want you to shut it and let it go. Listen to Elsa from Frozen. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. When you explode at your children's failures and beam at their successes in sports, how are they not supposed to believe that your affection does not rest on their performance? And by the way, don't let your children's sporting events dictate your schedule. It's a foolish error for several reasons. Your kid will not be a professional athlete. Like, Kyle, he's good. He's not. He's not. Statistically, it's more likely he would be struck by lightning while being eaten by a shark. He's not going anywhere. I would view my parenting as a major fail if Weston played Major League Baseball or NBA. I don't want him bouncing a ball on Sunday. I want him with the people of God. I want to live for something more meaningful than youth soccer leagues and the triumphs of fandom. Anyway, that's, that's me teaching you. That's not you teaching your children. But let's get to that. Many of you can identify with the scene in Chariots of Fire where the Olympic runner Harold, while pre preparing for the 100-meter dash, says, and I quote, 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Through the gospel, parents teach their kids to stop looking to sports to justify themselves and play sports as they were designed to be, as a gift to be enjoyed for their intrinsic good and to be stewarded for the good of others. And some of you are like, Kyle, I hate sports. Man, I realize it's instinctive desire to play what you said there in Genesis, but I have two left feet and my kids inherited it. Well, fine. That's okay. Paul uses farming just as much as he does sports to teach sanctification. And military language, war, just as much as he does sports. The point is taking every activity of your child's life and making them view it through gospel lenses. Last application is just for kids. Just for the kids. How well you play sports does not define you. Jesus does. Well, Pastor Kyle, is, is God pleased with me when I use my body to score a great goal or run very fast or serve an ace? Yes, I guess. God created you and gave you the ability to run and play. But God does not love you more on a day when you win than on a day when you lose. If you lose a game or a championship this week, Jesus is still on the throne and you are still loved. 
If you're David Ross and make the three errors, but then come back to win the game, Jesus doesn't love you any more than he did after the three errors. Sports matter a little, but you must understand it from the right perspective. Because of the gospel, you're not defined by your sin or by your success, but by your Savior. And I felt like I had to give those three applications because of the, the idolatry of sports that go on in our culture. If I were in another culture, I wouldn't do it. But I felt like it was appropriate for this. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.